I think that's important that we need to flip this round. And actually, it's a really good thing for people to know that if they're depressed, we don't have evidence that that's originating in their brain or there's anything wrong with their brain. You know, I, I also think that's empowering because it tells people, and it may be difficult at first to, to get your head around this, but it does also tell people, well, you know, your brain's working normally, so you can probably get yourself out of this. It may not be easy, maybe a lot of hard work, but, you know, there's no no biological reason why you can't. Well, that's the voice of Professor Joanna Moncrief, a psychiatrist and academic who's working to debunk the chemical imbalance theory of depression. This is the Liz Our Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all have a better second half. I'm Liz Earle, and I'm on a real mission to find ways for all of us to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. And as you well know, if you're a regular listener, a big part of this mission is about pushing the boundaries of science, questioning accepted wisdom, questioning, examining, probing, and this is precisely what Joanna has been doing. While working out of University College London, her research consists of analysis of all aspects of psychiatric drug treatment, including subjective experiences, political aspects of drug treatments, and a critique of evidence for drug treatments. Well, Joanna and her colleagues recently conducted a study, a review into selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, and they're one of the main medications prescribed to those with depression. Now, it's generally believed that they work by increasing serotonin levels in the brain, thereby alleviating low mood. But Joanna's review of 50 years worth of studies concluded that there's, quote, no clear evidence that low serotonin causes depression in the first place. Well, NHS prescribing figures tell us that more than 8 million people in England are on antidepressants. You may well be one of them. Now, I don't feel that Joanna's paper undermines the efficacy of antidepressants. For those they have worked for, your subjective experience isn't being questioned, but it does go some way towards helping us understand how our brain chemicals do, or perhaps don't, play a role in causing depression. Now, I know that questioning such a deeply held, accepted wisdom can feel uncomfortable, to say the least. But science is really about continually learning and adapting to new knowledge. So let's all, me included, go into this chat with a curious and open mind. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Well, Joanna, a very warm welcome to the show, and I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Shall we start perhaps then with this study that you've conducted into the chemical imbalance theory of depression then? Because this was the review of the meta-analysis of previous evidence. Is, is that about the shape of things? That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah, so this was a paper that we published last summer now, and it was what's called an umbrella review So because there's such an enormous amount of research on serotonin and depression, what Mm. we did was we looked at all the reviews that have been done of existing research in the main areas of research uh, so that we could get it all together and have an overview. And that's what no one has done really before. Uh, And I wanted to do it because it's been rumoured for a long time really, that there wasn't any evidence to support the idea that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance in general, uh, and an imbalance of serotonin in particular, for quite a few years now. But no one had really produced uh, an overview of the scientific evidence in order to back up that claim. So that's why I wanted to do that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely fascinating. Before we dive right in, give us the top line then of what you believe about the chemical imbalance theory of depression and and what you feel should be the dominant line of thought instead. So what we found in a nutshell is that there was no convincing evidence from any of the six main areas of research that we looked at that depression is associated even with serotonin, let alone caused by it. Uh, oh my proving gosh! That something proving <laughs> that something is 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 causal is you know is is quite a difficult thing. But we didn't even find evidence that uh, it is associated with depression. And serotonin is. There are other theories about other uh, brain chemicals and depression, but serotonin is the most thoroughly researched. And so I think we can conclude from that that there really isn't good enough evidence to support the idea that depression consists of or is caused by a chemical imbalance and obviously that's really you know really important because people have been told for decades now that that is the case yes and that's the medication isn't it it's against serotonin so if that isn't even a link let alone a cause I mean so that's that's quite an earth-shattering piece of information to be perfectly honest so absolutely and so many many people will have been told Uh, when they went to their GP with uh, depression, that they have a chemical imbalance in their brain and that they need to take an antidepressant to put that right. And basically what our research shows or confirms, I should say, is that there is no evidence for that view and people should not have been told that. And that, as you say, raises the question of, well, what are antidepressants doing then? If they're not correcting an underlying imbalance, what are they doing exactly? And that is indeed something that people really ought to be asking and ought to be worrying about because they're not placebo tablets. They're not just smarties. They do do something to the brain. Um, And the fact is that we don't know really very well what exactly they do to the brain. Certainly, we don't know well what they do when they're taken for long periods of time. And, you know, most, most chemicals that interfere with the normal functioning of the brain can have harmful effects, particularly if they're taken um, for years on end, as 
many uh, people taking antidepressants are taking them for. So let's start then as far back as we need to, and you, you can let me know where that is. Where does the idea that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance, lack of serotonin in particular, come from? What was the origin of that? So it starts out in the 1960s. And, and what happens then is that Drugs are being developed in other areas of medicine that are increasingly successful, so such as, you know, the um, anti-asthma drugs that we have today, antibiotics. New drugs are introduced into psychiatry at that time, into the treatment of people with mental health problems. And in order to try and align their use with what's happening in general medicine, psychiatrists come up with various theories that might explain the action of some of their drugs in in a disease framework, in the same sort of framework that's used in general medicine, along the lines of this drug works because it targets this underlying pathological process. So these theories are basically put out there as a way of, of, of bringing the use of drugs for mental health problems into line with the use of, of medicines in other areas. Now, The reason that was important is because the other way that you might explain what drugs are doing in this situation is you might suggest that they are actually modifying normal brain functioning, changing normal brain chemistry, and thereby changing our normal consciousness, changing our sensations, our thoughts, our feelings, in the same way that a recreational drug like alcohol changes our normal state of consciousness and all the mental activities that uh, that take place when we're conscious. So that's the other way of thinking about what drugs might be doing when we give them to people with mental health problems. And what happened is that when people started proposing this idea of the chemical imbalance, that, I- that other idea, that other approach got obscured and, and people forgot about it. And that was, I think... Uh, I, either consciously or unconsciously, um, a deliberate tactic on the behalf of the psychiatric profession and later on behalf of the pharmaceutical industry um, to stop people being concerned about using chemicals to adjust their emotional state. Now, the idea of the chemical imbalance didn't really take off much at that time. And it only really gets embedded in our society in the 1990s when the pharmaceutical industry really take it up. And what's interesting is uh, that the Royal College of Psychiatrists, actually, in, in a campaign that was funded partly by Eli Lilly, the makers of Prozac, they conducted a survey of people's attitudes to depression in the early 1990s before Prozac and all these new antidepressants had really hit the market. And they found that people were concerned about the idea of using drugs to alter their emotional state. And they felt that drugs wouldn't wouldn't correct anything, but would just numb them and make them a bit sedated and a, a bit less aware of things. And they didn't like that idea. And I think basically what happened is the pharmaceutical industry decided, went out to override that view and to change people's minds and to persuade people that that's not what drugs were doing they were really rectifying a chemical imbalance. And so they they really, really promoted them very, very heavily, resulting in the situation that we have today where most people believe that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance because they've been told that by their doctor or they've seen that in various information that's available uh, on the internet and elsewhere. 
So do you think that's just plain wrong or do you think we have to accept to some extent that at no point now or perhaps in human history can we have a definitive answer? Well, you can't. It's very difficult to prove a negative. So, you know, it's it's possible that more research might be done that would would prove that serotonin is linked to depression or some other brain chemical or some other brain process. But I think you also have to draw a line when you've spent 70 years researching into something and there's no convincing evidence that that it's the case. I think you have to say, well, actually, you know, we 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 can keep this as a hypothesis if we want to, but we really shouldn't be using this as the basis of treatment or promoting this or informing mm. people about this in any way. And surely that's the whole point, isn't it, of scientific research is to continue learning and making decisions, adjusting as we go based on the information that we do have. And, you know, studies like yours, you know, give us very clearly that information. Mm. Do you think then potentially that there could be even something sinister going on in promoting this theory? Or is the medical community just doing the best it can with the information that it's had? Well, I'm sure the medical community has no bad intentions. I'm sure that what they what they have done, they thought was in the best interests of patients. But I would say that I think they have not been sceptical enough of the claims of the pharmaceutical industry or the way that the pharmaceutical industry was sort of pushing them. Um, And, you know, I think they should have asked more questions and shouldn't have been, shouldn't have allowed uh, this situation to develop. But there must have been some kind of evidence that this was being based off in the first place, surely? Well, I mean, we looked at the evidence in our review and lots of studies were done into various aspects of serotonin activity. So just to take one example... The closest way of measuring serotonin in the brain up until recently has been thought to be measuring the um, the, the primary metabolite of serotonin because serotonin is broken down quite quickly in the cerebrospinal fluid. It's not not very easy to do studies on um, levels of things in cerebrospinal fluid because you have to do a lumbar puncture, which is quite invasive. But there have been quite a few studies done. Um, on that. And some of them turn up positive results and no doubt at the time were hailed as showing evidence that serotonin is linked with depression. Uh, But some of them turn up negative results and overall there's no evidence of of any connection. So, you know, that's, that's the way it works. Lots of studies are done. Some of those studies just by chance will be positive People who want to believe that this is true for, you know, and may not be aware that that's what they want to believe, but have a have a have a bias, have a predisposition to to Mm. um, thinking that depression might be associated with serotonin will seize on the positive results, highlight them and ignore the negative ones. Yes. Well, that's why a meta-analysis is just so crucial. And you can apply that to so many things, can't you, across the board? I mean, just, you know, as a kind of a, uh, off the top of my head, I, I get a lot of comments about dairy products causing inflammation and mucus and being pro-inflammatory. And yet when you look at the meta-analysis, the negative, you know, it's the exact opposite of that. And yet there are the odd random studies that, that show it to be so. And those are the ones that are seized on by the, you know, the oat milk manufacturers or whatever, because it, it suits yes. their agenda. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's such an important point. And the point about a meta-analysis is that you um, you do a, what's called a systematic review first, which means that you systematically search for all the relevant studies uh, and you do it very transparently. You specify what, what relevant means, what is going to be eligible and what's not eligible. And you search as hard as you can for all the studies. 
it's never going to be perfect because there will be studies that aren't published and, and they we know that they are more likely to be negative than positive. Yeah, I mean, well, that's an interesting point, isn't it, actually? When you look at the owners of the publications of the medical journals, mm. you know, they're often conflicted with the, the pharmaceutical companies who perhaps don't want that particular study published in the first place. It may not even be that a study gets to publication. Yes, yes. And, and, and the people doing the research as well are often, you know, motivated to find you know, th- th- believe mm. that that depression is a biological condition and that there is a serotonin abnormality or some similar abnormality uh, and so are, you know, going to be more motivated to publish their positive findings than their negative ones. Mm-hmm. Mm. So is it that the drugs, the antidepressants, do indeed alter mood? So when people feel better, they feel perhaps calmer, happier, etc. on these medications, those feelings themselves aren't untrue. But it doesn't mean to say that the depression was caused by chemical imbalances in the first place. Well, there's a couple of things to say to that. First of all, the evidence that antidepressants are actually helpful or make people feel better is very slim. And I would say is not robust. Um, (laughs) And and that's because, um, well, first of all, the difference between antidepressants and placebo when you do this sort of meta-analysis and you include some of the negative studies is very small. It's two points on the most commonly used depression rating scale. There are all sorts of issues about whether you can measure depression, of course, but putting those aside two points on a depression rating scale that uh, totals 50, 52 points, I think. Um, oh, so, really? Uh, two points out yes, of 52? 52, it's exactly. Tiny. So a tiny <laughs> right. amount. And most estimates of what actually constitutes a clinically relevant difference say that it's well above two points. And, and then the other point is that even that small difference may not be a real difference because there is evidence that these trials are not properly double-blind Because, of course, if you give someone an active drug that has effects, including what we might call side effects, that's different from giving someone an inert placebo that does not interact with the biology of the body. So people in these trials can often guess whether they're taking the antidepressant or the placebo. And there have been a few trials that uh, have shown that what people guess they're on very strongly predicts how people do, much more strongly than what they are actually on. Yes, um, so it that's may so be, interesting, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> so it may be that, that that's the cause. So, so that's one issue. I think there is a, a big question mark about whether antidepressants work, whether they do really lift people's mood or not. The other point, which I think you're, you're hinting at, and, and I would agree with, is that if they do, and, and there is some evidence that antidepressants... What, what, I'm, what I've been trying to argue for a long time now is that we need to understand drugs like antidepressants in a similar sort of way as we understand recreational drugs, we, we need to understand what sort of alterations, how they alter normal mental states. Yeah. And one of it, it seems that one of the ways they alter normal mental states is to damp down emotions. Um, a lot of people taking them report that they feel, you know, emo- emotionally numb, that they can't cry, yeah. for example. Yeah, just flat. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and there's there's one study in volunteers that suggests that may be the case as well. People without depression, that is. So it, it it may be that antidepressants are producing the small difference from placebo through these emotion numbing effects. Now there may be some people who might accept that and might think that's useful, but I think there are many people who would not feel that that's 
that that justifies taking a drug that changes their normal brain chemistry. And so, so the main thing that I was hoping to achieve through my paper, don't know how much I would have achieved it, but it is to ensure that people are informed that we have no evidence that the drugs are working in the way that was initially suggested by rectifying an underlying chemical imbalance. They may be working by altering normal mental states by causing emotional numbing. And, you know, then people need to make up their minds as to whether they think an emotional numbing effect is something that would be worthwhile for them, given the other things that we know about antidepressants, all the adverse effects they have and that sort of thing. And I'm sure that some people would, you know, would would still think that taking them was worthwhile. But I just think it's really important that people are informed because I think some people won't want to take them if they're given that information. Yeah, yeah, if they're, if they're presented with that with that knowledge, as you say. And even just thinking about the whole concept of this so-called, you know, chemical imbalance and this theory and, and how it gained so much support, do you think perhaps it helped to make it easier for the society at large, as well as the medics, to kind of wash their hands of people, you know, so instead of having to take a more holistic approach that is going to take a bit more time and resources and, you know, human care, for example, it's much easier, isn't it, to prescribe a drug and get people out of the system and back home, possibly just feeling a bit numb? Or is that too callous a suggestion? I I mean, I don't think anyone does that intentionally, but I definitely think that's, uh, you know, that's been an outcome of of this way of thinking. And, you know, the, well, the pharmaceutical industry probably do do it to some extent intentionally because they want as many people as possible to be diagnosed with depression, far more than any GP can, you know, really help support in any detailed or thorough way, as you suggest. And so the only option for a GP really is to prescribe an antidepressant if they're going to um, help people in in this sort of way. Mm. And I guess as humans, you know, we're always looking to create order from chaos and to kind of know the answer, to have the definitive solution that helps us. You know, we think with modern science that we know we need to know it all and that, you know, surely we can understand this. And, you know, maybe the medical community and the patients, you know, would rather feel that we've hit on the solution, you know, rather than work through the nuances or even admit that we don't actually have an answer yet. You know, maybe we don't know what causes depression. And actually, that's okay to say, I don't know. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. Um, And and linked to that is the, the, the point that I discuss quite often, that thinking that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance it can be, I think, helpful for people in the short term because it alleviates feelings of guilt and responsibility. You know, I was just listening to someone on a, a programme today. They said, you know, I went along to the doctor, I felt awful, and the doctor said to me, don't worry, we can help you with this. I mean, how reassuring is that? You know, lovely mm. to hear mm. that when you're in a, a real yeah. crisis and feeling awful. The fact is, that's just not true, you know, and and we should not be oversimplifying things in that way. I think in the long term, it doesn't actually really help people to tell them that. In fact, there's been research that shows that if you tell people they have a chemical imbalance, it can, for some people, um, alleviate uh, feelings of shame and, and guilt, but it makes people more pessimistic about their chances of recovery. 
Interesting. I guess it's that that notion of being able to say, well, it's just how I'm wired. You know, it's yeah. my chemistry. And that's quite comforting because you don't feel that you or perhaps anybody else that might have caused some sort of trauma or whatever is actually to blame. It's, oh, it's just how I'm wired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So on the flip side then, would it be seen as comforting to know that there's nothing wrong with your brain well, and that actually the, the, the chemicals are not imbalanced? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I think that's, you know, I think that's important that we need to flip this round. And actually, it's a really good thing for people to know that if they're depressed, we don't have evidence that that's originating in their brain or there's anything wrong with their brain. You know, I, I also think that's empowering because it tells people and it may be difficult at first to to get your head around this, but it does also tell people, well, you know, your brain's working normally, so you can probably get yourself out of this. It may, may not be easy, maybe a lot of hard work, but yeah, you know, there's yeah, no, work. no biological reason why you can't. Well, interesting, you talk about biological reason. You know, we do often hear that there's a genetic or a hereditary element to, to mental illness. What's your reading of that? I think there probably is some genetic element to mental illness to the extent that, I mean, for example, some mental illnesses are more common in people with lower IQ, not depression, but but other ones. And IQ is partly determined by uh, genetics. Temperament is is probably partly determined by genetics, and that probably influences Mm. your your risk of developing uh, various mental illnesses. So I think there's some genetic element, but I think you can overplay it. And you know, what the evidence shows overwhelmingly is that depression is related to what has happened to you and what is happening to you. So it's your, you know, if you were, if you had a really difficult childhood or you were abused or maltreated in childhood, that increases your risk of depression. There was a really interesting study done in Germany actually recently, and it was a, it was a brain imaging study. It was a study run by neurobiologists. And what they did is they measured lots of different uh, brain imaging parameters, and I think some genetic ones as well. And what they found is that the difference between people who were diagnosed with depression and people who weren't on any of these things was tiny, really minuscule. But the difference in terms of rates of childhood abuse and maltreatment and rates Mm. of current social difficulties was enormous, was really significant. Gosh, well, of course, Gabor Mate talks a lot about that, doesn't he, with, with trauma yes. and, and his work yes, with mental absolutely, health, yes. which, which is a massive subject. Yeah. <laughs> well, stay there, Joanna. I mean, there, there's still very much to cover with you. I want to talk particularly about what a healthy, quote, range of human emotions is anyway. everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosa 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O-L D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so let's get back to the antidepressants. What about those who are absolutely adamant that antidepressants have helped them, they've changed their life? You know, what would you say to them? Is it, is it, are you just saying, well, frankly, it's all in the mind, it's a placebo? Well, um, I think it could possibly be a placebo effect. It's, you know, you can't tell with a single person what it is, and that's why we need to do trials. Um, and the trials suggest that the difference between antidepressants and placebo is not large. But I don't. But I want to emphasise this. I don't want to tell anyone not to take antidepressants. If people sure. feel that they're useful, that's fine. But I do want people to be informed. That's you know. I, I think that's yes. it's important that people have the latest information and haven't aren't taking antidepressants on the basis of misleading information. Yes, absolutely. And also, then, if antidepressants are creating a chemical imbalance, as it were, what's the long term effect of that? Yeah. So. I mean, this this is this is one of the real downsides of this idea of the chemical imbalance, of this idea that antidepressants are targeting some underlying abnormality. Because of this, we really haven't paid enough attention to the way that these drugs are changing the brain and the consequences that has mm. um, for the person as a whole. So we haven't paid enough attention to the effects of treatment, but we do know that antidepressants cause dependence and can cause some people have real difficulties withdrawing from them. Not everyone, but quite. It, it looks like around about half people coming off them have some difficulties, and half of those will have quite severe difficulties trying to get off them. And then there are a whole range of other adverse effects that occur while people are taking the drugs. Sexual side effects are well recognised, osteoporosis heart problems. But something that's come out recently that I think is most is really concerning is that in some people, some of these adverse effects seem to persist when they've stopped taking the drug. So really, that's quite frightening. It's, it's very frightening. And the most yeah. dramatic of these is the, uh, the evidence, the increasing evidence that for some people, sexual side effects will persist after they've stopped taking the drug. Um, particularly, this is particularly characterised by numbing of the genitals and therefore, you know, difficulty getting aroused and having orgasms, etc. Um, and we, this has only really started to be reported recently. I would say that a lot of the scientific community have been very sceptical about it and really just not wanted to think about it. But there are several lines of evidence, apart from people reporting this effect, 
you know, we've also got this emotional numbing effect. So it seems like there's a generalized numbing effect, which uh, which is sort of consistent. Gosh, physical and emotional. Yeah. And there's evidence from animal studies that antidepressants can affect subsequent sexual activity. So there's a, a study with adolescent rats, for example, who've been given an antidepressant. And then it shows that when they're when they develop into adulthood, they're not as sexually active as as the rats that weren't given the antidepressant. Well, you know, I know a lot of us listening here are parents, you know, at this stage of midlife, perhaps parents of teenagers or young adults. How do you feel then about teenagers being given antidepressants? You know, I'm thinking particularly about the idea of them blunting emotions at a time when they're still maturing emotionally, they're learning how to manage the emotions that are coming up. So, so, I mean, I think we really need to avoid them, particularly in younger people, if we possibly can. But I do, you know, I do acknowledge that some young people have, you know, really severe emotional problems. It is a time in life when your emotions are very intense. So there might be some people that might benefit from them. I would say that if you feel your child, you know, there's no other option and, and you know, you want to try, you think your child needs to try antidepressants. Try and keep them at the lowest dose for the shortest possible time. Don't just leave them on them. I think that's the most of these side effects seem to be worse in people who've taken antidepressants for long periods of time. So try and, and, and avoid and define that. long years. So years. define years. years. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Fine. Well, speaking of emotions, then this is a really interesting point. Who gets to decide what quote normal range of emotion is in human beings? You know, who decides at what point on the spectrum of emotion intervention is needed? What what is normal emotionally? Yes, yes. Well, I think, I, I mean, I think that's a good question. And, you know, we, because we don't have any evidence that there's a chemical, you know, basis to emotions that you can measure, we can't, we can't say what's normal and what's, and what's not normal. We can only say, I suppose, you know, that the, the, this is the, the range of what most people seem to feel mm. and that's obviously very subjective and it doesn't mean that if you're mm-hmm. you know a bit extreme that there's something abnormal it just means yeah. you're at one extreme end of this range so um, are we perhaps pathologizing and in turn then medicating social or cultural or relational situations you know i'm thinking of things like heartbreak grief unemployment you know these are all relatively normal natural stages in life and it's kind of almost being medicalized i I think i think that's exactly what's happening i think we've been encouraged to be less tolerant of our unpleasant emotions now when we you know when we feel bad when we feel sad or anxious that's a signal that's our body giving us a signal that something in our life isn't right you know so there's, there's something that's making us unhappy or making us anxious or making us afraid and what we need to do is address what it is that's that's causing the problem. Sometimes we can't address it, and sometimes addressing it means we need to teach ourselves to wind down a bit, you know, and not 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 to react quite so strongly. Um, but but you know, I think I think we have lost sight of this idea of what emotions actually are. They are a response to what's going on in our lives. A natural response. Yes, absolutely. An expected absolutely. natural response absolutely. that perhaps you know shouldn't be feared. Yeah. And I wonder if even the, the quote normal that we want to try to return to is based off a societal value system as well as personal expectations. So, for example, do you expect yourself to be calm and content all the time or yeah. elated and joyful all the time? Or, you know, are you yes. the kind of person who's OK to accept, actually? You know, life will have undulating highs and lows and actually not see that as a problem that needs to be solved. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. And I think, you know, I think part of the problem here is our media saturated society, you know, that all the time we're we're being shown pictures of people who, you know, live great lives and smiling Hmm, away and very successful (laughs) and have the latest furniture or car or whatever it is. Uh, And so all the time there is there is encouragement for us to feel a bit inadequate about ourselves you know oh gosh mm-hmm. you know my my sitting room doesn't look like that, well, that yeah no of, the toxicity it, of comparison yes, yes. dreadful I, I think instead of acknowledging that we've been pathologizing those completely mm. understandable reactions depression you know that low low mood does clearly exist you know but rather than being a disease as such is it is it more of a functional signal so actually aiming to get rid of it isn't necessarily the right thing to do because it's it's a warning sign yeah i um, i think so i mean i suppose to add to that you know there are some people who really struggle to deal with it and struggle to address whatever it is that's that's getting them down and when people are really severely depressed Sometimes they do, you know, need quite a bit of support. And some people we see in mental health services actually need looking after for a time, you know, to either to protect themselves from themselves or just because they can't even, you know, they've got so depressed they can't even feed themselves anymore. So, you know, so sometimes depression can be that bad and people really do need to support to come out of it. But even in in most of those situations, I would say, it is still because um, that sort of depression often happens in the elderly and it often happens after they've lost a spouse or sometimes after retirement, for example, when there's been a big life change. Um, so, you know, so people may struggle to, to deal with it, but it is still most of the time a reaction to people's circumstances, even when it's not. And there are cases, I would say, when depression does seem to be inexplicable. Um, there still isn't any evidence that we can correct it with drugs or with anything else. So we still need to treat it by supporting people, supporting people to get through it. So we're kind of saying that we need to change how we view depression and that if we could have more of a a growth mindset and an understanding that, you know, emotions can, can change, they can be helpful, ultimately that would lead to better mental health outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. So I I did an interesting study looking at blogs by people suffering from depression recently. And that was really interesting because people, people were quite keen on the idea of a chemical imbalance when it came to explaining the depression. But when it came to how they would recover, how they'd get over it, they were all very much taking the perspective of taking that developmental perspective that you use that was that's a good term i think they were looking at their lives and saying okay what is this teaching me about my life and and how do i need to change it and they were making those changes and you know then then looked back and felt that the depression had actually had a purpose in their life and and had helped them get to somewhere different and somewhere better in in most cases in the end so if we pull at the thread here that it's our circumstances that cause depression could there still be a biological element though in terms of how we feel how we think how we react to the world you know our chemical makeup what's happening with the chemistry and actually thinking about midlife and we talk a lot here on this podcast about perimenopause and menopause and hormonal changes and the loss of estrogen for example Mm. from the estrogen brain receptors causing low mood or appearing to trigger low mood you know are there physiological factors at work 
that could have some sort of chemical interaction within the brain that is yet to be explored. So so, um, there are definitely biological states that can make you depressed. I mean, just think of um, sleep deprivation, for example. You know, we all get quite... Uh, yeah. quite low and tearful when we're, when oh, yeah. we're deprived of sleep. Um, yeah. You know, some drugs or, or the come down from some drugs makes people depressed. So so definitely your biology can make you depressed. I, I don't know enough about the literature on the menopause and depression. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's probably would probably be very difficult to say that there's no physiological basis to depression around the menopause. But equally, I'm not sure it's been demonstrated mm. what, what that might be either. Uh, and, and of course, as I said earlier, people are different and some people will have, you know, a greater vulnerability to depression for various reasons, which will probably include to some extent their, their genetic heritage. Although, as I said, I don't think that's necessarily as, as big as it's often been made out to be or as strong an effect. So, yes, uh, you know, things that happen to your body, biological things can make you depressed it's still the case that we can't rectify those things with any of our drugs or with any other procedures so the the process of getting over depression is is still the same really it's still about trying to work out if there's anything that you can change that will make your life better even if it's not been the cause of it is there anything that you know you could do to make your your circumstances better and easier for you and then the general things that uh, generally lift our mood such as exercise, good diet, yes. purpose. Cold showers. Cold showers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, the research on cold showers, I tell you, that little dopamine hit, yes. I do it every morning. Yes, yes. My, my son <laughs> wouldn't, my, wouldn't give it up. My son's been trying to persuade me to have them, but I'm afraid I'm, I'm not brave enough. Oh, honestly, just start start at the feet and work up, you know, count to 10. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm now up to about 90 seconds and it's life changing. Right, right. I mean, you know, thinking about positive ways forward and, you know, and perhaps kind of being a bit controversial here. Do you think that antidepressants are a sort of necessary evil when there are many plays on our time and our resources? You know, the, the, let's face it, you know, the mental health support is very sparse and inaccessible to so many. So should we be just be saying, OK, we acknowledge the data isn't robust, but, you know, it, it's a necessary evil. Let's just use them. I, I, I No, I don't think so. I, I think that we really need to rethink depression and all common mental health problems. I think we need to take them out of the medical sphere altogether. And um, Wow, that, and, that is a strong statement. Yeah, and, and put them into <laughs> something like social work. Because in most cases, what people need who are depressed is help sorting out their debts or their finances or their housing problems or support with the relationship difficulties. And those would, you know, it would be much better to to have a, a social worker dealing with that or overseeing that than a, than a doctor. But you're challenging the whole medical framework here. And, you know, you personally, do you feel that you have to be brave to speak up against all this accepted wisdom? Are you a lone voice? So I'm certainly not a lone voice. Uh, there are uh, other psychiatrists and general practitioners who've, who've talked about trying to demedicalize uh, depression and other mental health problems. But, but it is a controversial area. And there are some psychiatrists who feel particularly threatened, I think, by this sort of discussion and certainly have uh, certainly challenged me. 
I'm sure. I'm sure you you will have come you will have come under attack, <laughs> yeah, won't you? Yeah, frankly, yes. And and reputational damage and undermining. I mean, we we see it across all areas. And you know, I've been doing this podcast for many years now, and it, and it has always struck me when talking to really senior, respected medics across all areas. You know, from menopause and hormone treatment through to you know gut health or statins or you know whichever subject you you, you care to to pick that you know there there is a bias and an agenda i don't know how orchestrated or not depends on you know your point of view on that which will attack anything that challenges orthodoxy and i guess let's face it you know if you spent your entire life researching studying advocating for a certain way and then somebody comes along and says actually guys that's completely wrong that is super challenging, isn't it? You've got yeah. to be a, a, almost superhuman to be able to say, you know, actually, do you know what? Hands up, you're right. You're right and I'm wrong. Yeah. I got it wrong all these years. That's a really hard ask. Yes, yes. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that's a, a bone of contention. <laughs> okay, so listen, we're, we're going to wind up now. Let's on, end on a positive note. And I know this will be really gripping and many people want to go back and re-listen to this. Uh, to to finish, how would you like to see us both individually and collectively dealing with depression then going forward, given the knowledge and the information that you've given us? So um, fundamentally demedicalizing it. And by that, I mean, seeing depression as an emotional reaction that needs to be understood rather than medicated, rather than treated and, you know, essentially obliterated. Yeah, so so that, you know, I think that's the number one thing to change people's understanding about not just depression, but all mental health problems. And as a positive, that not only can, but should happen. Yeah, we can actually think that that is the way ahead that we should be working towards. Yes, and, and it has started to some extent with, um, you've probably heard of social prescribing that's going on in, in general practice. So, you know, that's that's part of the point of that. Um, and the nice guideline on depression, although it's you know coming with it, it's within a very medical framework. They recommend a lot of non-medical um, treatments, including mindfulness, problem solving, as well as therapy, which has always always been uh, you know one of the options. So there are trends in that direction already. Mm. And I guess you know part of you know my job and your job and others working in this area is to get that more widely accepted so that when we do go to our GP feeling low weight we don't come away feeling shortchanged if we don't have a prescription in our hand for a pot of pills but we've actually got a note that says take a walk in nature try some wild swimming do some breath work you know that we that we feel that that is actually positively going to help us yes and, that, and we're not disappointed not to be taking a tablet yeah I mean I mean Basically, we need to undo decades worth of propaganda from the pharmaceutical industry that has persuaded <laughs> us that depression is a chemical problem in the brain. And that's going to take time and be difficult. But that's what we need yes, to do. Yeah, it is indeed. Joanna, thank you so much. It's been incredibly thought provoking and I'm very grateful for your time today. Thank you. It's been a good conversation. Thanks. Well, Joanna, thank you so much again for talking us through all of that. I personally think you have taken a really interesting, brave and counterculture stand on all of this. So important to do and actually exactly what science and interpretation of data and evidence-based information should be all about. What do you think? 
Well, it goes without saying, of course, that if you've heard this conversation and feel that Joanna's research is compelling, please do talk to your own GP before making any decisions about the future of your own treatment or medication. And I suspect that this one will be getting you talking. So do please let me know what you made of this episode on Instagram. We are at Lizar Wellbeing. That's the place to continue those conversations. And I'm also there at Lizelle Me. You've been talking about our episode with Ginny Mansberg, and that was all about how hormones change our skin as we age. Sharon says, it's just awful. I've been complimented on my skin all my life, but I'm suffering with constant acne, like congestion that won't go away around my chin and jaw. It's horrendous. Well, Sharon, I do hope that you felt that Ginny had some useful advice on the show. And at The Alternative Facialist on Instagram wrote, I became a facialist because of this very reason. I hit perimenopause at 47 and my skin went to pot. I had redness and sensitivity plus enlarged pores. I felt I aged overnight. I couldn't find a facialist who dealt with this, so I trained at 47 and now I specialise in menopausal skin issues and pro-aging. I'm now 53 and my skin has never looked as good. Oh, fabulous. Good for you. Well, next week, more on hormones, how to eat to fuel them. Do make sure that you're following the podcast so you're back here next week for that one. Or if you want to hear it 24 hours before everyone else, you can subscribe to the Lizard Wellbeing Show Plus on Apple Podcasts for a small monthly fee. And all episodes on there are ad free. So until the next time, go well. Bye bye. The Liz Earle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off.